get some blood lactate testing on a, a climb to establish everyone's uh, threshold powers to set the training zones from there for the rest of the year. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 98 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about testing. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And yes, a review to get us underway today. Insightful, interesting, applicable. Five stars by Total Fit Doc from the US. Damien produces one of the most interesting and useful podcasts on the internet. He puts in the time needed to research his topics and creates a show that not only delivers great content, but also content you can listen to week in and week out. It is actually one of the few training podcasts I listen to. As a podcast host myself, I highly recommend this podcast as another resource to take your training to the next level. By Chris Harnish from the ESP Podcast. I'm so stoked you dropped by, Chris. Thank you very much for writing that review. It really, really does mean a lot to me that you think so highly of semi-pro cycling because I think the ESP podcast is the bee's knees as far as training and science information goes. So thanks again for taking the time out to do that. And if you do like the show, please take some time out to go to iTunes or Stitcher to write a review because five stars makes me... Thank you very much. Now, the two great articles that I got from the web this week, the first one is, of course, a study with a crazy, literal, long name. The effect of almond consumption on elements of endurance exercise performance in trained athletes. Almonds, almonds, almonds. Who doesn't love a good almond? Their consumption has been shown to ameliorate oxidative stress, inflammation, etc. But why the hell would you want to study almonds in the context of endurance training? The objective of this study was to examine the effects of almonds on elements of endurance exercise performance in trained athletes. And the methods used, a 10-week crossover placebo-controlled study was conducted eight trained male cyclists and two triathletes were randomly assigned to consume 75 grams per dose of whole almonds and I looked it up that's about two-thirds of a cup of almonds or they were consuming an isocaloric cookie with an equal subject number. So it's the old almond versus cookie debate. And each one of the subjects consumed the assigned food for four weeks and then the alternate food for another four weeks. They underwent three performance tests, including a 125-minute steady-state exercise, a 20-minute time trial on an indoor trainer at the start of the study and at the end of each intervention phase. Venous blood was collected in the morning prior to the performance test for biomechanical measurements and finger blood during the test for glucose determination. Carbohydrate and fat oxidization, energy expenditure and oxygen were calculated using respiratory gas analysis. But before we get to the results, I tried to find the type of training that they were doing to try and get an idea of how good these cyclists actually are. And 
I couldn't get anything but total kilometers for the entire group, which was between six and seven hundred when they were on the almonds, and then a little bit lower when they were on the cookie. So it really is useless to us as half-serious bike riders to take this seriously, except for maybe the general effect of training, which then dumbs down the whole thing and means it's more of a health-based look or a population look at whether almonds can help you live a healthy life when you're doing endurance exercise or something to that effect. Another really funny thing about this study is the language they use when they're talking about the results. The almonds increased cycling distance during the time trial by 1.7 kilometers as compared to the steady state where the cookie increased by 0.6 kilometers. The funny thing to me really is that they're just claiming that it was just the almond. We know it's not just the almond. But the almond, not the cookie, led to higher carb and lower fat oxidization and less oxygen consumption during the time trial than the steady state, whereas there was no significant difference in heart rate among the steady state almond or cookie groups. And the almond maintained higher blood glucose level after the time trial than the cookie. So the conclusions that they draw are that whole almonds improved cycling distance and the elements related to endurance performance more than isocaloric cookies in trained athletes, as some nutrients in almonds may contribute to carb reservation and utilization and effective oxygen utilization. So they're claiming the magical almond is going to help you. I'm a bit skeptical and I'm really disappointed in this study actually. It doesn't make anything conclusive to me because it's so general that it falls flat in a couple of different areas. I still say almonds are the bomb but also go easy on the almonds because the calories can sneak up on you but definitely there's no reason not to eat almonds. That's the only conclusion I can come up with here. Article 2, how do I train for sprinting. This is a blog post from Flamme Rouge. It's an excellent blog that runs through a lot of different topics when it comes to training and this is super comprehensive. Hat tip to Rob for sending me this one. It is the most comprehensive resource that I have come across on training for sprinting. It breaks down sprinting's fundamentals and gives you a visual look at the power output that you should be producing when you are sprinting. This is something I've done myself to get a feel for the perfect sprint and I really, really find it helpful. The movement itself is also broken down into launch, surf, and lunge and the coolest thing it doesn't end there there is more great stuff on the specifics of training including this gem another misconception many people go out to do a three-hour ride then throw in a few sprints at the end when I ask why they say well that's when you sprint at the end of a race logical but wrong if you've spent three hours working riding around doing your stuff then you try to do three sprints let's say you bang out an average of 750 to 800 watts top effort well done Nice numbers, but what are you going to do if it takes an average of 900 watts to win a sprint? If if you did your sprint training in the first half an hour after a good warm-up, now you're banging out about 1,000 watts and you're stressing all the energy systems, neural pathways, and metabolic enzymes. Now you're building raw, race-winning sprinting speed. Sprinting at 900 watts will go easy. Job done. Always do your sprint training when you're fresh. Get it done. Get it out of your system. Then go and get your endurance in. An early sprint is a good sprint. It's a strong sprint. It's a winning sprint. 
Alrighty then, the nuts and bolts this week, training strategy and race selection with Colby Pierce. If you don't know who Colby is, he began racing in 1989 and hasn't stopped since. He turned pro in 96. During his career, he's held four national records and been 14-time elite U.S. national champion on the track. He was a member of the 2004 Olympic team completing in the points race. He's also a coach and he had a stint as the U.S. national track endurance coach for USA Cycling and now he owns his own coaching company. He still races mountain bikes, road, track and cyclocross events throughout the U.S. and I wanted to get him on the phone to talk to him about his role as a coach but I started by asking some questions about his own cycling. I wanted to actually just focus really on your role as a coach, but I I want to dig in a bit deeper into you as a rider first, because you would just be crazy not to talk about that side of of cycling and you. I get my reference, one of my references from Steve Hogg, where he describes you as having attention to detail and a professional and holistic approach to your conditioning, diet, performance and tactics. And just trying to get behind this and understand how this translates into your coaching. But as a rider, what does this mean? I think that, you know, everything that a rider does or an athlete does or even more globally a person does sort of impacts their cycling and their performance on the bike. I mean, you can't, you know, of course, as as coaches, um, we want to take an individual aspect of someone's performance. We want to isolate it and look at it as singular. But the reality is that that doesn't really ever happen. I mean, personality plays into how their tactics and or executed in a bike race for example or and the personality also impacts how they train on the bike the types of intervals they want to do um the type of rider they are for example when jonathan vaughters and i used to train together as young riders he just he had this very short attention span he wanted to get on a bike and hammer really hard for like an hour and and i had an instinct to want to ride longer as a as a young rider or at least that's what i thought that would i thought that's what was necessary to make us go fast I remember taking Jonathan on one of the longer rides we did as younger riders, and it was only like a two and a half hour ride. And I remember him just sort of freaking out and saying, we've been riding the same cadence and speed for like an hour and a half, you know, and as a 17 year old rider, that was like intolerable. So that was an example of how his personality just didn't, didn't really play into what we were doing on the bike. And I, I think that you have to look at somebody globally as an athlete or holistically and sort of look at all their tendencies and all their aspirations and sort of meld all that together in one piece and understand they all impact each other, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And for anyone at any level in cycling, if you want to do well, I always think that it's a full-time job. There's no time that you can back away from thinking about things that are going to affect your performance later on down the track. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You know, cycling has a way of consuming people's lives. <laughs> so I think you've got to be a bit cautious about it and, and, You've got to think 24 hours a day and consider how your actions are going to impact your performance on the bike. But there's also, that said, there's got to be a trade-off between sort of going insane with it and and sort of having a, a lighthearted approach to it. Because the reality is you think about it 24 hours a day, you think about how all the things you do are going to impact your riding. But, you know, you've also got to got to take a step back and, and live life and, and not let it eat you. So... There's a balance there, I guess is what I'm saying. Part of this all fits in, obviously, to your writing and your coaching sort of philosophy and things. And I'm just trying to get behind you as a coach. And it seems interesting that the way that you approach things is, is a little deeper than kind of I was thinking about. Because 
attributing training styles and, and training programs to personality is something that I'm not sure how many people actually do it. Like people take the time to understand their riders and things, but to actually get down to figure out on a deeper level, is that part of your theory for being effective or how did you come to that conclusion that that's the best way to do things? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, maybe instinct, I guess. Um, I mean, take Phil, for example, like Phil's an amazing rider and, and he wouldn't tell you this because Phil's experience is probably just being Phil. He may not, it may not occur to him that anybody does anything differently, but in the, however long I coached Phil, I think it was around three years, three and a half years, there were probably, I don't know, a dozen days where Phil didn't do exactly what I told him to do. And those were days where like a hurricane came to Florida or, you know, the airlines lost his bike. Um, and that's just Phil's personality. Phil's like a rock. You know, he just, you tell him to do six hours with these intervals at this pace and these intervals at this pace. And he comes back and his training file says 601.34, you know, and he's done exactly, he's ticked all the boxes. Not every athlete is like that. And, and it's not, not to say that Phil's a very type A personality. He's just a guy who's sort of a very down to earth, sort of no bullshit rider. And if you tell him to do something, he'll do it not all the writers are like that, that I work with. And that's fine. You have to understand sort of what makes them tick and what motivates them. And, and for me, it just sort of, it's intuition that brought me to that point. I mean, it makes sense. Like if a certain writer is not going to, not going to benefit or flourish under a certain type of program that you write that for them, then, then you've got to find a better way to motivate them or to get the best out of that athlete. You know what I mean? It doesn't make sense to write training for a rider in a certain way if it's not going to work for them. So sort of enforcing a certain type or methodology of training may not work. Instead, I look at it as what's going to optimize this rider's performance. And that doesn't necessarily mean turning them all into robots or turning them all into fill. Like another guy might ride on a half as much volume, but do quite well, for example. So you have to look at the rider as an individual. And I think to me, that was just intuition. I don't know how I, I came up with that that sort of approach it just sort of is what makes sense to me and i think it's worked out really well for a lot of my riders so i keep doing it yeah it sounds like phil guyman is a, a dream athlete to coach actually if uh, if you're <laughs> not having the issues you normally have with trying to have some type of compliance or whatever but yeah he's the reason that you actually came to my attention and a lot of a lot of listeners attention as well and it's really about the strategy and it kind of fits into this. This is kind of the next layer on top of thinking about personality and, and how that works with training. But the strategy behind actual training and how that translates into winning a bike race, which at a certain level, that's what it's all about. But I kind of want to talk about your approach to this because it was very interesting in the interview that it wasn't just about identifying just a certain type of race it was kind of finding a, a mix between what someone is good at the certain type of race the weaknesses and strengths that they had in that balance when actually training them because say your philosophy on your website you talk about training your weaknesses racing your strengths which is a classic mm -hmm. idea but yep. you know you refer to athletes themselves having different qualities and i think that's what you're kind of talking about here but it's not it's not just mental it's it's speed strength endurance and aerobic capacity and things but what steps do you take to identify a rider's natural strengths well one of the things i do is i give my my new clients a questionnaire that sort of lets them tell their story and it's got quite a few questions it talks about everything from 
you know, what their, what the first race they ever won was to what races they enjoy most to what races they detest the most. And those can give you big hints. Just their, their experience can really tell you a lot about what their abilities are because riders tend to naturally gravitate towards the things they're best at. And if they've won races or if they've won a lot of races, they'll tell you about how they won a lot of criteriums. Then you can, you can quickly sort of gather intel on what type of rider they are. But then also once they're riding, I get as much information as I can about them. And that some of that comes from power files. Some of that comes from race reports. But if it's available to me, I'll also use other people's insights into that rider. If I can talk to their directors who saw them at the race, if I can watch them at the race or be at the race with them or sometimes even racing with them, I'm also observing what they're doing, how they're racing, how they're positioning up on the field, you know, what their tactics are, when they choose to attack or not attack, things like that. And, and it all goes into a pile of information, and then you come up with this unique individual, and then you can sort of pick apart where they've made mistakes. Maybe they ate at the wrong moment or didn't eat enough. It's all valuable to sort of get a model of, of what they're doing and what kind of rider they are. So then on the other side of that, how do you identify the events that they're good at or what's your best approach for actually identifying the requirements of a specific event and how they match that rider? Well, I mean, it all depends. I mean, there's factors that go into that. I mean, okay, you look at a U.S. domestic rider. First of all, you ask them what their goals are and what events they, they might want to do what. But then you have to counterbalance that with, well, what races does their team actually get to do? And then at those races, what is their assigned role going to be within the team? I mean, you know, a rider might say, well, I want to win the Cascade stage race. But first of all, their team may not be going to that race. And then if they are, well, what's their role within the team? Are they in a domestic professional team? Or are they, you know, are they going to be asked to ride, ride in support for another rider, for example? Can their team even get to the race? So you have to sort of pick apart all those goals and balance them out. And sometimes the answer isn't always clear. Sometimes a rider's schedule you know, you don't know it. Um, I mean, Phil's race schedule on Garmin this year is constantly evolving. So we may or may not know what races he's going to do later in the season. We have, we have an idea, but due to, you know, the nature of, of things changing, we can't, you can't necessarily target certain events for certain riders. So you've got to be, be a bit creative, but in cases where it's more clear then you know, if, if a rider has, full say over their schedule say they're a, a colorado level rider that I, wor- I work with a lot of riders in, in the state of colorado and they're just racing in that state exclusively so we can pick out their goals clearly they say i want to do this mountain bike race or this state championships or whatever it is then we lay out the season based around that and we build towards it just like you would a normal coaching program and in that case it's it things are a lot more cut and dried so thinking about this type of strategy and, and thinking about the races, obviously there's other considerations to think about that you've just kind of brought up that I hadn't thought about. Just if you can't target an event, if your team's not going to be racing it, you know, simple things like that, I guess. But yep. you yourself have had kind of an interesting path to get to where you were or where you've, you ended up and had a lot of success on the track. And listening to an interview you did with Mike Creed, you talk about knowing what a Colby race is. And this idea kind of fascinated me, and I'm sure people implicitly have this thinking around this, but you very early on explicitly stated this, that a Colby race is something, well, you talk about not being able to sprint, and you talk about you either can sprint (laughs) or you can't, and so very early on you had to figure out what's a race for you, and you actually changed events from your focus 
and chose yep. the points race. And and yes, you do talk about a lot of this was on gut and just it wasn't really anything specific that I could pinpoint in the interview. Maybe you can clear that up. But at what point would you recommend that someone changes their entire event that they're going for? Well, I mean, I guess that's a tricky question because for me, it was just a really clear intuition. I mean, I'd, I got to the point where I had done several NRC races in 98 in particular, there were three NRC criteriums where I formed, I, I attacked, formed the breakaway, drove the breakaway, went to the line and got smoked in the sprint. And I knew that I had done sufficient training to where if I was going to be a sprinter, you know, it was going to be, it, 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 I hadn't left a stone unturned in terms of, I had done a lot of work in the gym. I'd done a lot of explosive training. You know, I'd done plyometrics, investigated all those sort of traditional means of, of adding to, the quiver of your sprint as much as possible. And I was convinced that there was not much more I could do. It's not like I'd never been in the gym, for example, or, or never done any sprint training. Um, so for me, it was really clear, okay, this isn't, I'm not going to be able to go to the line with Julian Dean, who at the time was just cleaning up in the States there. And I'm not going to be anywhere close to him. It's not going to happen. So I've got to, I've got to find a different way to win bike races. And I was determined enough to do that. So I, I just changed my focus, but as far as a general, in a general sense, when a rider knows that they've got to change their, their strategy and really look at a different event, that's honestly, it's a very complex question. I mean, there's a really fine line in cycling between delusional and realistic. And unfortunately, the sport tends to attract people who, who dream big, but don't, can't always follow through. And, and, you know, I've been that rider myself. And many times I've, I've thought that I was going to win this or that, or, or been convinced that if I trained this way, I was going to get it to this level. And it just, it never happened. And cycling has a very harsh reality to it. But I do think there are riders who are dogmatically set on being a certain type of rider um, or a certain type of athlete. They think they're going to be a climber and that's all they can be. And, and the, the cool thing about cycling, the really interesting thing about cycling is that almost any body type can find success in it if they are willing to work really hard. Um, I mean, you look at the tour, that's what's unique about cycling. You look at basketball, it's all tall guys, you know, or mostly tall guys, the vast majority. There's a certain body type that's going to be necessary to be a linebacker. But in cycling, you've got almost every body type, you've got guys who are barely five feet tall, and you've got riders who are over six feet. And you've got climbers and sprinters and everywhere in between. And the riders who are really, um, at least in terms of raw body type, there's a, there's a big variation in cycling, probably bigger in professional cycling than there is in most other sports. Now that said, obviously cyclists have to have, they do have to have certain basic components and some people probably what's not as obvious is there's a certain basic level of neurological function that's necessary to ride a bike effectively. And some people really struggle with that. And it's maybe not as obvious, but you've got to be able to deliver power to pedals and not everyone is capable of doing that at a high level. They're just not. So that's where the art form or the suplex comes into cycling, I suppose. So that's actually a great segue into what I want to talk about next, which is bike fit, because it is unnatural yep. for someone to be sitting on a bike and the, yep. the art form of the bike fit is, um, is something that's it's thrown around a lot when you talk to people in cycling and you've chosen to align yourself with Steve Hogg, which I'm a big fan of. And mm -hmm. he's the type of guy that polarizes people pretty quickly because of 
I don't know, his unconventional methods or he's, you know, he's very firm in his belief. Whatever it is, he has a really intense kind of approach to his bike fit. Plus, he has a depth of knowledge that is, is pretty incredible. But what led you to yep. Steve Hogg? Uh, well, simply put, I, I just started reading um, some of his articles on, on cycling news. This is where I first uh, found him. And then I went to his website and I started reading a lot of his articles. And his uh, he has an insane amount of, of knowledge on his website. People have written in questions and he takes the time to answer them. And he's just, I mean, he's just buried himself writing all these email responses to people trying to help out, help people out. And you really get a good feel for his philosophies and his thought processes that go on um, in a lot of these responses he's written to people. And, and the guy, as you said, he's just, he's got an incredible depth of knowledge and I really um, resonated strongly with his line of thinking and his, um, his approach and his methodology to fitting. And then I discovered that he was actually training fitters on a sort of, applicant approval basis uh you had to you had to apply and write him in write to him and and begin conversations and basically you know it wasn't a thing where you just signed up and you were automatically accepted he he approved his applicants and i brought it up with my wife and she's a very intuitive person and she read some of his stuff and she said i think this would be a really good fit for you and i felt it was another way for me to serve some of my clients i just i feel like a lot of riders fit bike fitting is sort of this mythical weird thing and a lot of people don't understand it very well and and um, sometimes I feel like I don't understand it that well. <laughs> it's extremely complicated to, to fit a human on a bike. But anyway, I, I contacted Steve and he responded positively. And I ended up going to Sydney to train under him. It took almost a month. And I rented an apartment and stayed there and just just experienced bike fitting in Steve's world. And you're right, he's a very polarizing personality. He's very, very smart. He's also um, got a, a strong dose of, I guess, Australian gruff, I guess you could say. He's He's a really, really very direct person, and some people can't handle how direct he is, especially, I think non-Aussies maybe have a harder time with it in some cases, especially Americans, but I prefer pretty direct means of communication. I got along with him well, and and Steve also is very, very put off by people with a lot of ego who think they know a lot. Steve is a really, really well-educated, smart guy, but he's also the first to admit that he's often wrong and that he doesn't know everything, and he appreciates it when other people can sort of approach things from the same manner which is you know look i'm really fucking smart and i know a lot but i also know that i can be proven wrong and that i don't know everything he he can really identify with people when they're when they have that humble perspective and i i try to embrace that myself i'm i'm a big believer that no matter how much you know that's the beauty of cycling is that you can study your whole life and still learn so trying to get behind uh steve just a little bit more but more about the process and kind of what you learned and were there any really big takeaways from before you went into that three weeks or four weeks or whatever, and that you came away with afterwards that were counterintuitive to what you originally thought or just something that really stuck out to you in the approach to bike fit that you've kind of taken with you from now? I don't know that it was much that was counterintuitive. I, I'm happy to say that what I learned there was mostly fell in line with what my intuition was going to be about it, mm-hmm. um, which I think serves to sort of illustrate the fact that it was a good choice to go down there study under him. I think one of the big takeaways was one of the things that Steve impressed upon me was, you know, it's really tempting as humans to sort of reduce things and, and make sort of assumptions about systems. Meaning if you have five riders that walk through the door that exhibit a certain complaint or a certain 
symptom on the bike and you employ a certain method and that method is successful in in helping these riders overcome that complaint you're going to be really tempted to draw the conclusion that if a rider walks through the door with this and you do this it will fix it and he said the second you do that you're going to have five more riders who walk through the door who have the complete opposite response <laughs> the method you employed before does not work at all or alternatively they have the same complaint or they have a different complaint and you can use that same method and it still works, for example. And so the underlying message is that basically you have to approach every single fit as a completely unique and individual experience because you'll have riders with seemingly identical complaints or a set of circumstances or femoral leg length discrepancies, for example. And the way to tackle those is ends up being exactly the opposite or completely different, I should say. Um, means to de- to effectively negotiate those discrepancies. So it's it's fascinating. I mean, I mean, doing a bike fit is it's like playing chess all afternoon. It's an extremely complex game you're playing, and you're trying to figure it out. It's like a it's like a complicated puzzle, and it requires all your attention. And there are many many moving parts, and it's complex. So you you feel like you've gained something, but you're also exhausted. Yeah, which I think is very interesting because the way that Steve kind of approached it. He's so against just franchising or, you know, defranchising this whole thing because the danger in that, and I think you've highlighted that, the danger that one person walks through the door that is the anomaly, then you set them up, put them on their way, and then it just absolutely fails for them, and it could fail in a bad way. You know, in particular, what comes to mind is all the fitting systems that are out there now. It seems like everybody's embracing a fitting system, and and it's to the point where sometimes I say to people that I'm a bike fitter and they say, oh, what system do you use? And I say, well, I don't use a system. You know, I, I'm a bike fitter. <laughs> I just fit the person to their bicycle. I, I use the system of common sense, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's like, I mean, the danger there is that fitting will always be a blend of science and art. And you use your tools, your measuring tools to measure certain things and quantify certain things about the fit, saddle height or reach or or whatever. And that's fine. But the danger comes when the when the fitter starts to lose the eye to see, to really see what's happening on a functional level with the athlete. Um, I would say above all, Steve's Steve's system of fitting is, if he has a system, is function based. Meaning that's the bottom line of what is most important is the function of the athlete on the bike. They've got to sit on the bike properly with proper posture, with proper extension. But the drive of the fit is to make sure the rider sits on the bike as well as possible and delivers power and is as comfortable as possible. So the problem comes when the system comes first and the numbers are the, are the end result. And then without regard to the function of the rider, I think that's where I think a lot of fitting fails the athlete and fails to provide customer with what they need in my opinion and i think i'm sure steve would agree with that so to just quote steve one more time he was kind of talking about your incredible flexibility and uh is a pretty funny story um involving uh, another coach alex simmons but uh someone could read that on the website but it kind of brought up this point about like i don't know how old you are late 30s early 40s or something but so for a cyclist especially to be as flexible as I think you are from what I read, it's a pretty big deal to me because it, it's very rare, I think. So I want to talk about the habits that you formed very early on to get to this point though because it's 
it is a habit-driven change. It's not something that just um, you wake up one day and start stretching for 30 seconds and it happens. It's, it's a process over yeah. a long, long period of time to get to where you are. When did you start actively thinking about mobility and flexibility? Uh, well, I would say, um, actually, I would say that I've always been very flexible. I think that's one of the things that I just had uh, naturally. Um, for whatever reason, I've got very elastic tissue. <laughs> um, and I've always been that way. And uh, I'll say that uh, I did wrestle in high school, and we did a lot of stretching and wrestling, and that maybe had some role in that, but I don't think it played an enormous role. And it, it, it did impress the value of stretching upon me, but I will also say that stretching like anything, flexibility like anything, falls on a spectrum. And when you get to the either end of the extremes of the spectrum – it can be problematic. Yep. So for me, being flexible or basically borderline hypermobile has caused me many issues in my riding. In fact, I'm sure that it's cost me um, maybe as much in some cases it's gained me. Uh, you know, I can I can slam my bars really low and be in a ridiculously arrow TT position and still generate power seemingly well, but having all that mobility comes at the cost of precision. When you've got someone who's really flexible, you've got to control that motion. So most of my latter part of my cycling career was spent actually doing more exercises that were stabilizing and strengthening rather than, you know, I don't need to increase flexibility. And when I see a hypermobile client, I give them the speech all the time. And it's the same for someone who's on the other end of the spectrum. If they're super tight, they've, you know, anyone, any athlete who comes in who's incredibly tight, well, they've got to get more flexible or they're going to have problems. It's going to show up as complications in one form or another. But for me, it was about controlling that mobility. Um, but it's not something I, I, I enjoy stretching because it feels good to me, but I don't work on it per se because I don't, I don't feel that it would benefit me as a, as an athlete even to this day. So, yeah, I absolutely support your idea about flexibility or, and mobility and stability. They definitely go hand yeah. in hand. It's kind of interesting that you're doing work now. I don't know exactly what your role is with, um, Garmin Sharp or Slipstream Sports, but I did read on yeah. Twitter that you were doing some work undoing some T-Rex posture. What is T-Rex posture? <laughs> T-Rex posture is simply, uh, we do so much sitting in our lives. We sit at computers, we sit in cars, we sit on airplanes, and now if you're an athlete, a cyclist, you sit on a bike. And T-Rex posture for me is simply the collapsing of the frontal chain, which is really the line on the front of your body from your belly button up to your collarbone. And when most people sit, that chain gets smaller and collapses and the posterior chain or, or, you know, really broadly, simply put the spine gets longer and rounded and you look like a T-Rex, your arms collapse in and your, your, the front of your body folds over. And when you do that, you know, it can inhibit breathing. Um, it can cause stress on the lower spine or the lumbar spine or, or any part of the spine really. Um, in some cases, the, the spine up near the neck, the cervical spine can get collapsed and rounded as well, and you get increased uh, kyphosis of the spine. So it, all those things can be problematic. And I think that, you know, guess what? Mom was right. Mom always said, hey, you should stand up straight. And, and what I find is interesting is that some people are attentive to their posture when they're standing, but as soon as they're sitting, that attention goes completely out the door. So when they sit in a car, they allow themselves to sit with a rounded, compressed frontal chain or, or spine. When they sit on a bike, they sit with a rounded spine. And that's not healthy. Uh, a human spine is not meant to be 
in that state for long periods of time, in my opinion. I'm a big believer in, uh, well, I'm a, I'm a big subscriber to foundation training. I think it's, it's one of the, the programs that really talks about the same concept. It's basically um, the idea that when you bend at the hip, you should bend, you should bend at the hip without compressing that frontal chain and collapsing it compressing or collapsing either either word can be applied and um so the exercises are geared towards allowing you to hinge at the hip without without having that happen and so it's interesting i think people i i I tend to also apply a very postural approach it's about educating the client how how they're sitting on the bike and how they how i think should sit on the bike yeah definitely there's a gap between the knowledge and the practice in cycling I think there's more knowledge yeah. entering into the cycling world and people are talking about it, but actually getting that into a routine of somebody is, is a whole other issue that's really, it's, it's going to take a while for, for that to kind of happen and it, and it needs people actively thinking of better ways than just writing a program and hoping someone will do it. I think that you just need to start small and, and kind of build up from there, but yeah. I'm going to yeah. wrap up there. I think there's a lot in there that the people have to go back and listen to. But where can people actually get hold of you or find out more about you? Uh, well, my website is simply uh, colbypierce.com, so that's pretty easy. Uh, you can probably just enter that in or find it on Google. I think it comes up pretty well. So um, that'd be the simple way. My email's on there and my phone's on there. People want to get a hold of me. That's the way to do it. Alrighty, the tech hacks and products section. This week, it's a product slash hack. And I'm amazed that I still see riders using Breathe Right nasal strips. They've been a part of cycling culture for over 15 years, I'd say. And over this period, both in cycling and in other sports, Breathe Right has not been proven to increase performance in properly designed studies under normal conditions in healthy subjects. There may be a psychological benefit if you're blocked up or the shape of your nose or nasal passage might benefit from extra opening up. But outside of that, nothing has really been proven for a direct performance output. So it's interesting that there is now a new competitor in the mist. It's called the turbine. And while nasal strips go on the outside of your nose, the turbine is an interior nose job. And it's hard to describe, but it's a bit of plastic with some springs and some rubber to keep it in place. And you push it into your nostrils and it pushes them outwards. And once it's in there, I guess it's opening it all up so it leaves more room for air to get in. There's some pretty big claims made on the manufacturer website including a six and a half percent increase in power from using it pretty bold and actually not scientifically backed up so i guess you would have to give it a go if anecdotally you think it's going to be good for you but i can't guarantee that it's going to improve your performance from what i've read it does look a little intrusive and maybe a little bit funky but you might just forget about all of that if you're left with extra air and somehow you win the race while you're wearing it but i'll put the link in the show notes so you can check it out and i'm interested if you have used it and what you think of it And now that quote from the top of the show, it's Evan Huffman, the US Astana Pro, talking about the first training camp of this year, 2014. It's a bit rich to say that a test at the start of the season sets the zones for the entire year, but definitely testing early is all about benchmarking so you know when you're getting better across the entire season. But I'll put that clip in the show notes as well so you can check it out. It's really good. It covers all of specialized bikes, teams, and it's 
pretty comprehensive in what it goes through, even though it is a bit of content. And that's it. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to Semi-Pro Cycling forward slash Colby to find any links used in this week's episode. From there, you can sign up for your free wheelhouse masterclass, Building the Base, a step-by-step system for achieving your cycling goals. So till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 